0: Right, so let me quickly uh, give you a bit of the lay of the line the way I hope to proceed. Um, I'm intending to just take approximately 30 minutes of the, the time talking, and then I want to allow for the last 15 minutes for questions, because often these topics that we handle in seminar form are best handled in a way that one is scratching where it's itching rather than sort of just... Uh, Uh, fanning bullets into the air and hoping that you hit something. All right, so that's the way I hope we'll proceed. Um, The subject, as I already said, is God's will, and it's a seminar on um, still the same theme of doctrinal clarity for a confused generation. And there's no doubt that if you are not an individual who asks this question, you definitely will be an individual that other people ask this question. Okay, how can I know what God's will is? In order for us to make a bit of progress, we will uh, begin with reading uh, Romans chapter 12, and verse one and two, and I'm hoping we will end with Romans 12 verse 1 and 2. In between, we will be flying through quite a few passages of Scripture because I do want to prove um, the most basic points by uh, visiting as much of the Bible as we possibly can. So I'm reading Romans 12, 1 and 2 from the English Standard Version. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God? What is good, and acceptable, and perfect? Now, this passage that I've just drawn your attention to is really a, a dividing point in the entire book of Romans. There are a number of pass- rather points in the book of Romans when the Apostle Paul hits what one would call a high knot. Uh, For instance, we're all familiar with Romans uh, chapter 4 as it comes to an end and at the beginning of chapter 5. It's fairly clear that the Apostle Paul is changing gears there, going from individuals being brought to uh, repentance and faith in Christ, being justified uh, through faith. And then as he enters chapter 5, is now dealing with the consequence of all that now upon the Christian life. By the time you get to the end of chapter eight, again, you can't miss that glorious high point when he speaks about the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. When he hits uh, the end of uh, chapter 11, it's another high point and that's where we are when he speaks about all the depth of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. At this point, it's a major division because most of what you have prior to this, um, you don't have actual instructions about what we should be doing. Prior to this, we are simply being told who we are, the, the facts, the indicatives of the Christian Life. In fact, it is argued that the only injunction that we find prior to this is in Romans chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul is in fact telling uh, the Romans how to think, not even what to do, but how to think. And then as he comes past chapter 12, it is one thing after the other. In terms of how it is that as believers they ought to live in the body of Christ, how they ought to live with one another, etc. In fact, when you come to chapter 12, verse 9 downwards, I mean, you almost feel as though the Apostle Paul has pulled out a machine gun and is now just blasting away bullet after bullet to do with how we ought to live, because literally, every three or four words is one instruction but as he is transitioning from the indicatives and going on to that which ought to be done by believers you notice that his his first concern is that believers should find god's will should discern God's will. That's the very first thing, and that it is a personal responsibility. We will look at it in a little more detail as we go towards the end, but to begin with, we really just want to answer the question, what does Paul have in mind when he speaks about the will of God? There are two senses in which we speak about the will of God, Uh, The first is normally referred to as his decretive will, and then the second is referred to as his preceptive will. I want to begin with the first. We will look at a number of passages because that's not the one being addressed in uh, Romans 12. So I want to at least get that one out of the way, and then we will proceed and spend a little more time on the second one. Let me first of all quickly say what the Bible would normally refer to um, in the the first sense, and it is referring to that which is God's sovereign will which will inevitably happen. It's something that you cannot thwart. It is, in many ways, also referred to as God's secret will. In other words, it is one that is not known until it happens. It's one that only God himself knows. Um, I'll say a few things about it as we will proceed. So let's begin, first of all, from Daniel and chapter 4. Now, we will be flying because of lack of time. So um, if you are a bit on the slow end in finding these texts, as it's beginning to appear with me already, uh, <laughs> then you'll just be hearing as we make our way through. Okay, so Daniel 4 and verse uh, 35. I begin with verse 34. At the end of the days, I Nebuchadnezzar lifted my eyes to heaven And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and here it is, and he does according to his will. Among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? The point there is that he is absolutely sovereign, absolutely powerful as a king to carry out his will. There's nobody that can interfere with that will. Let's jump into the New Testament And then we have uh, Matthew chapter 10, Matthew 10 and uh, verse 29. Matthew 10 and verse 29. Uh, Here, it's not so much that it is stated as will, but I'm pretty sure you will understand that that's what he has, Jesus has in mind. Uh, He says there, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. The point that Jesus is making there is that God is in absolute control of everything, that not a single bird dies without it being his will, and that's the falling to the ground. Mark chapter (coughs) 3 and verse 35, Mark 3, and verse 35. We read there. Um, Okay, no, this is definitely not his uh, preceptive will. I'm not exactly sure how I ended up leaving it there. Um, It ought to go, rather, it goes to preceptive rather than decretive will. Let's go to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, I'll come to this one later, but Ephesians chapter 1 uh, and verse 11, it's it's not too obvious what is being said there, but it still is helpful for us uh, to see it. Ephesians 1 and verse 11, the Apostle Paul there says, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, let me quickly explain what he's talking about here. The point that Paul is making is that um, God already decreed in eternity our election to salvation. He's already talked about that in um, verse verse 4 even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Okay, so that was his will. It's his decretive will. He's already made the decision that we would, in due season, in history, come to him in repentance and faith. Of course, Him working in the background to bring this about. Now, that's the statement. Him working in the background to bring this about is what verse 11 is now talking about, okay? So in him, we have obtained, so this phrase there now is the actualization of that which has already been decreed, okay? Having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works everything according to the counsel of his will. So we have been predestined by one who now carries out what he predestined. And that which he carries out is that at now this point, this predetermined point in history, we now benefit from what he had decreed. So again, it's his decretive will. Those whom God chose in eternity to be saved will be saved. Nothing can ever thwart that purpose. Um, I'm trying to cut back on time here. All right, so if you're taking notes, let me quickly give you a few more. Uh, one is First Peter 3 verse 17. And four, verse nineteen, that speaks about if if it's God's will for you to suffer. All right, so it's it's something that God has determined, and it comes to pass. Or Acts four, verse twenty-five. There, it doesn't use the word uh, will. It uses, uh, I think, the phrase that uh, th- that which God had planned, and His hand had carried out, and it's referring to the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Um, So those passages all refer, in a sense, to the will of God, to his decretive will, to that which will inevitably happen, because God predetermined that it will happen. It is a matter of time. The second is his preceptive will. Now, the reason why I'm putting this as number two is because this is the one that the book of Romans is referring to. Um, And what I hope you will notice from this is the fact that This is now something that is more of a command on the part of God. It is one that represents his moral values. It is one that speaks in terms of um, the fact that God is good and consequently wants us as his people, or at least those of us who worship him, to emulate him by seeking to uh, show forth those same attributes. Okay, so let's quickly go to Matthew and chapter six, um, Matthew six and verse ten. Matthew six and verse ten. All right. So your kingdom come. That's in the in the Lord's prayer your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the very fact that it is a matter we are praying about means that it is something that might happen or not happen, and we are asking that it actually happens. And this is really referring to um, the... God's will in in terms of people, human beings on earth, obeying his will with the kind of readiness that angels in heaven obey him. Your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Or chapter seven, the same Sermon on the Mount and verse 21, where Jesus is speaking about how We we will be judged at the end of our lives. Uh, Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. All right, so remember what I said. This is now talking about his moral values and us seeking to live according to that talking about God's commands and us seeking to obey them. Okay, Um, Ephesians 5 verse 17. Ephesians 5 verse 17. In fact, I ought to quickly say this, that most of the times when the Bible is speaking about God's will, it's speaking about it in this way, because it's, it's dealing with it as a very practical aspect of our lives. And uh, I'll come and comment on that later. But Ephesians 5 and uh, verse 17, uh, listen to this. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be foolish, but understand what God's will is. And then it begins to speak about a number of ways in which we are to appreciate what God's will is, and then live like that. And so you have quite a bit of that in the book of uh, uh, Ephesians. Um, Dr. MacArthur, in his little book, which uh, I'm commending to you, I'm told it's available in the, uh, the bookshop, not the tent, but uh, the on the other side, um, I hope it is because uh, we agree that it will be made available to you. Um, It refers to this passage of Scripture, and um, listen to the way he puts it. It says, as believers, people in God's family, if we do not know God's will, what are we? Uninformed? No. Searching? No. We are stupid. And then he goes on to say, that's pretty rough, say The Bible doesn't talk like that. Oh, try this. And then he quotes this same text. Um, Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Then he says, can you think of another word for unwise? I'll give you a hint. It starts with S. All right, so that's uh, him uh, in his humor. But he makes the point that um, it's our responsibility, therefore, to seek to know what God's will is and to live like that. In First Thessalonians, we have at least two references uh, to God's will. And it is again in this uh, preceptive mode. The first is chapter 4 and verse 3. Uh, and this is what it says. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter, etc., etc. Again, one of the chapters, is a very small book, by the way. It's uh, uh, less than 60 pages. But one of the chapters in here is dedicated to uh, sexual purity. It's entitled The Priority of Purity. And that's one area where nobody should doubt what God's will for us is. Nobody should doubt. And as much as the world tries to make it wider in terms of uh, sexual permissiveness, anyone who reads the Bible will know that God is very clear about the context in which we can express ourselves sexually, and it's only in marriage. Okay, so uh, that's, this is the will of God. It's his command It's according to his moral nature, and therefore we ought to follow that. And then we have chapter 5 and verse 18. Chapter 5 and verse 18. It says there Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Again, there it's a command that's being given to us, and we all ought to be seeking to live like that, that even in the midst of our most difficult circumstances, we ought to be able to thank God for them. It is said of uh, one of the Puritans, I can't remember who it was, who you know, was robbed, and um, upon being robbed, he, he paused and thanked God uh, for the event. And he, he thanked God about five items out of that robbery. And I don't remember all the others, but I remember one of them. And he said he was thanking God that he was the one who was robbed, rather than him having been the robber. You know, so there are quite a lot of things you can thank God for that you don't think about in your moment of uh, difficulty. Okay, again, those of you taking notes, I can give you the other passages that I have here. Um, I have first Peter 2 verse 15, Hebrews 10, verse 36, Hebrews 13. Now, my text here says two to twenty-one. I very much doubt that that's what I had in mind. I suspect it's twenty to twenty-one, and then First uh, John two seventeen. But he who does the will of the Lord lives forever. I'm sure you remember that text. Okay. So very quickly, in the next seven minutes, the the point I want us to appreciate about these two, the decretive will and the perceptive will is this, that some historical happenings are there for God's will, but they are not God's will. Okay, They are God's will in terms of his decretive will in the sense that nothing can ever happen without God allowing it. And yet, they are not God's will in terms of his perceptive will. In that it is not something that God has commanded us to do. All right. So here's an obvious example. You go through a painful divorce, and it's because your your spouse has abandoned you for another man. It's painful. Is it God's will? It's obvious, it's yes and no at the same time. It's yes in the sense that if God had not decreed it, it wouldn't have happened. It's no in the sense that God has not commanded us to break up marriage until death takes place. Let's use another one, perhaps that might help. Let's go to Genesis and chapter 50. Genesis 50. We we all know the story of Joseph. Joseph, while still a young man, was sold off by his brothers as a slave. Well, first of all, sold off in terms of, you know, do with him as you please. But the guys who took him, obviously, took him as a slave, sold him into Egypt And for many years, he was going down the drain one step after the other until he found himself in prison. Well, we all know what happened after that. He became the second most powerful man on the planet. His brothers came to him. He revealed himself to them. Uh, Every time I read that passage of Scripture, I'm grateful that the will of God was that I was not one of those brothers. Uh, uh, yeah, I would have died of heart attack. But out of that in due season, Joseph's father died. The brothers were anxious about it, and they then came up with a story to him that the father said they should be forgiven. Was it God's will that Joseph should be sold off as a slave? Again, the answer is Both yes and no. The yes is what he talks about here. The no is that God has not commanded us to be selling off our brothers and sisters as slaves. Okay, but let's quickly read the the, uh, yes part. Um, Joseph says to his brothers, uh, let's begin with verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph, That's Genesis 50 verse 16, saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. So it certainly could not be God's preceptive will. They did evil. It's not according to God's moral nature. We are told here, um, and now please forgive the transgression of your servants, of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So Joseph was not bitter towards his brothers, partly because his mind processed it this way, that God ultimately is the one who decreed what has happened as painful, as it may have been across time, as painful as it may have been, he had a good purpose in the end, in the end. So there are many situations that will happen in our lives that because they happen, they must be God's will. And if we can learn to process it that way, we will be saved from a lot of bitterness, we will learn to thank God in all situations, saying to him, you must know what you're doing, Lord. You must know. Because if it was not your will, it would not have happened. But then at the same time, where we are responsible to take steps, to take actions, we are to think in terms, not so much of God's decretive will, as I said, that is secret, but rather we must be thinking in terms of his preceptive will. What should I do that is in line with God's moral character? That is what our responsibility is. Now, very quickly, it's already 30 minutes, but uh, let me try and fit this in. This is where sinners and saints go in separate ways. Let me put it this way to you. Often, the only interest that sinners have in God's will is knowing His secret and decorative will. That's the only one they're interested in. They want to know, for instance, that if they play the lottery, they will win. (laughs) (laughs) And consequently, if it's in Africa, they would be visiting witch doctors to find out from them that which. They have no power to find out, but they will be doing that. Or those who are more religious tend to go to so-called prophets. And they go to the prophets because they presume that these men, and sometimes even women of God, have the ability to peep into God's secret will and tell them, what's coming ahead. They are not interested in knowing God's preceptive will. How does God want me to live? They are not interested in that. In fact, they fight it. Whereas when it comes to God's children, and that's what I really meant by saints, our chief interest is in discerning God's preceptive will in the day-by-day situations. We really want to know, in the midst of the various decisions we have to make in life, as to whether this is something God wants us to do. And often, that's uh, a matter that um, we we seek counsel from one another. We pray over and so forth. And that's what Romans chapter 12 is all about. It is this preceptive will. And just two quick points, and then I'll hopefully open it up and we still have another uh, 10 minutes. Um, Just two quick points. First of all, This is dependent on the state of your heart. And that's what Romans 12 is all about. Uh, It begins, first of all, by saying, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. In other words, everything I've spoken about from Romans 1 up to Romans 11, because they speak about how God has had mercy on you. And therefore, you are seeking God's will out of a heart of gratitude. You you thank God for his grace upon your life, and you are saying, because God has loved me so much, I want to serve him. I want to live for him. I want to worship him. I want to love him back. It's when you have that attitude of heart that consequently you may be enabled to obey God's will. But then also comes a process that Paul speaks about here when he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So that's really the positive thing that you're seeking to do now. Because the Lord has saved me, I want to surrender my everything to him. And it's out of that that disobedience to God's will inevitably comes around. And then he mentions, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is a lifelong process. Because all of us come from an unsaved background. We come from thinking like the world I was preaching yesterday about this. We are from the world and we are from God and so on. When you're thinking like the world, you are not able consequently to discern God's will and obey it. And therefore it's important to go through that entire process as a lifelong process where the word of God is bathing your brain and consequently your heart as well. And it is when you do that that Paul says there that you will, by testing, discern what the will of God is. He's good, which is Agathos. is acceptable, which is Eurestos. And then lastly, perfect, which is Teleos. And all these talking in terms of Agathos, his moral values. Um the being acceptable in other words, being pleasing to him, and then finally being perfect in terms of being whole and complete. That kind is what manifests God's will to us. Okay. I'm left with nine minutes for any possible questions. Yes. Oh, sorry, Uh the one in red, and then we'll come to the brother in blue, yeah. Yes, yes, in red, yes. There's one person, like in Robert, for example, saying that a person has a plan, but God directs his path. I mean, does the scripture teach that there's also, you know, maybe people know it as a perfect Okay. Uh, What you have in that passage of scripture is actually both. The, The first part is you seeking God's will for your life. All right. So you want to do that which is pleasing to him. The second part of that verse is basically now referring to the fact that in the midst of all that, what will finally happen will be that which God has actually already decreed. But because we are walking in fellowship with him, these two merge into one. So in many ways, it's like um, you've got somebody who is sick in your family, and you are praying that they recover. It makes sense because under the goodness of God, that's essentially what you expect to happen. And if God answers your prayer, the person uh, gets well. Well, what you have is his decretive will and that which is his perceptive will, perceptive rather, coming together. You've done what you're supposed to do and it fits into that which God's ultimate will is. There are many times when... The two don't merge as um, uh, you pray for somebody that they might get well and then they still die. So you say, well, you asked that which was good and pleasing and perfect in his will, in his eyes, but it was not his decretive or secret will, which is his ultimate sovereign will, And has been taken to eternity. Yes. Yes, in fact, uh, when I began, that's where I started. I said that this little paragraph, in fact, is a stepping stone into the rest of the Book of Romans. So all those commands that we'll be finding, uh, the injunctions that are there, all grow out of this. So what you just referred to here is simply the first. But you have our relationship with authorities, We've got that aspect about loving one another. We've got uh, chapter 14 that deals with us um, learning to um, not quarrel over each other's qualms and so forth, but putting love first and, and so on. You can, you can keep going on. So a lot of that is now us applying uh, what God's will is that represents the love of God and the moral being that he has. Okay. Any other? Just got five more minutes. Yes. So in the charismatic movement, they would say, I heard God tell us we should do this. And like say, for example, we're planning for a retreat, and we want to choose a theme. There's lots of great themes we could pick. How would you respond to someone who says, I need to wait to hear God's voice to decide what the theme of that retreat is? Yeah, well, first of all, I think we, we do need to be praying about a lot of things in our lives, okay? So if you're planning a retreat, do pray about it. Uh, do ask the Lord to guide you and so forth uh, to what it is that you, uh, you ought to, to handle and so on. But uh, avoid navel-gazing, you know, where you're sort of just somehow hoping some voice will be heard as you're looking down at your tummy. Uh, <laughs> rather, uh, use your mind, because that's the gift that God has given you. Think in terms of what are the needs that are there in the church. Think in terms of what are some of the issues you've already addressed and how you can build on them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's the way in which God has gifted us with minds to be able uh, to think. Uh, think in terms of um, in the multitude of counselors, there's wisdom. In other words, put whatever you now come up with uh, among your fellow leaders and say, you know, what do you think about this? Or here are three options, which one can we pick? And so on. And trusting that in the midst of that, uh, to use an old phrase, common suffrage, you, among God's people who all have the Holy Spirit in them, you are able to arrive at something that might be uh, God's God's will. Uh, so there is some aspect of praying, and we must take that seriously because we need his guidance. But at the same time, recognizing that we have means by which to to then do it, keeping those two together. Okay. Uh, certainly, the uh, keeping your mind blank and hoping you hear a voice is is not the wisest of things. Yes, at the back there. Oh, yes. Yes. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, The Apostle Paul uses the phrase that by testing, you may discern. That by testing, you may discern. And um, another way of putting it, because it sounds a little uh, sort of uh, uh, complicated, is simply that you may prove or that you may know. Um, and basically, the the, the point of uh, testing there is in terms of the the transformation that would have taken place in your own mind. In other words, you 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 are. Uh, let me use an, an obvious example. You. The next passage talks about our gifts being used in the church of Christ, right? So it says the. An obvious example, um, uh, the one who teaches in his teaching. So, oh, maybe let's use another one to do with giving. Uh, contributing to the needs of the saints. That's, that, that becomes a little easier. And he says there, be generous. So the, the testing is where you are saying, okay, this is what I ought to do, but how realistic would this be in terms of, for instance, how wise would it be for me to give so much? Because in giving so much, I may hurt my own domestic situation. So it's it's that process now that is being tested. It's enabling you to become realistic and then you proceed. So it's the the testing is the, the the aspect of it being with your feet on the ground. That's really where it is. Um, and then you proceed knowing this is good, pleasing and and perfect will. Uh, it's time up? I'll just allow for just one more. Yes. Yes, well, as as we noticed in in Genesis uh, 50, it's the fact that God sees the end. And the end is that ultimately he will be worshipped for who he is. So, for instance, he would allow something which is evil to happen primarily because he wants to show himself to be a God of wrath so he will punish the sinners and in that sense he will be worshiped as as a god of justice and so forth but in terms of the immediate dealings there are no easy answers there because you know if thieves come into your home and and kill all your family and leave you alone i mean the hardest thing for you is to start saying to the lord lord you know that you might be worshiped i mean your heart is broken it's it's split asunder and so on. So there are those aspects that um, will be difficult. For those of us who are pastors, understanding God's will this way helps us to minister to those who who are hurting, and at the same time helping them to make decisions that will be God-glorifying. Okay, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us this time to think through this very wide subject and at the same time a very practical one. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to think through this foundational subject because ultimately everything that we need to do, we need to ask ourselves, will God be pleased with this action and this decision? And yet at the same time, so much that is done to us is negative. And we have to learn to submit to your hand in providence. Cause us to be true worshipers of the living God by holding both your decretive will and your perceptive will. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen.